Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 257. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 257 you're listening to. My guest today, actually my guests, plural, joined me recently for the production panel that I hosted at the Music Expo, San Francisco edition. I recorded the whole thing. So we have, of course, Starita, Emiliano Caballero, Warren Hewitt, Michael James, and Lenise Bent. We all sat down for a discussion. Some of you may have seen me post about that on LinkedIn. In fact, some of you said, hey, will this be out on video? And I said, I don't know, but I do know it will be out on audio. And that is what we have today. So Music Expo coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about Disneyland. That's right. Disneyland. So... As I've mentioned numerous times, and don't worry, the month is almost over and we can quit talking about it, but this is the month of November. I am now 50 years old. I'm just taking the whole month to celebrate, really. We had a great party at 25th Street Recording, and the following week, this past week, uh, my wife and kids surprised me with a surprise trip to Disneyland. The significance of that for me is that 25 years ago, my wife, who was then my girlfriend, surprised me with a trip to Disneyland as well. Let's let's first of all talk about Disneyland sonically. What an amazing place. If you've never been, you should go. I've been several times in, in 50 years. And you just kind of tune into different things that maybe you, that other people who aren't in audio tune into. One thing is the transitions from the different areas. If you go to, you know, Frontierland or Tomorrowland or wherever you're going in the park, if you're going to go, if you have a trip planned or you plan on going... Pay attention to what's happening happening sonically. It's really fascinating. Just the transition into the new Star Wars land, I think that's that's called the Galaxy's Edge. Super intriguing that not only visually does it make a, uh, a transition, but sonically it makes a transition. And then the next thing you know, you can't hear anything else but Star Wars sounds, you know, whether it be music or the sound of... Uh, spaceships flying overhead. You'll be sitting in the middle of the area in front of the Millennium Falcon there, and you'll hear what appears like a ship flying over. There is no ship flying over. It's just, you know, it's an auditory illusion. But it's really intriguing. And a uh, couple couple changes I noticed this time for those of you that are super Disneyland geeks and super audio geeks. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, when you go into the area where they're firing cannonballs back and forth at each other in the big open water section with the the pirate ship. Um, I don't know what's going on over there. Sonically, the voices sound like they're coming out of uh, tiny, tiny speakers, and it's really shrill and awful sounding. So to those that are listening at Disneyland, please do something about that. That's that's truly awful. Also, things got really loud. We went into the, um, well, first of all, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, that particular thing I just mentioned not only sounds bad, but it's loud. But also the uh, Haunted Mansion all decked out for Nightmare Before Christmas, so it's a slightly different theme change, but also incredibly loud. Uh, my kids noticed it, my wife noticed it, and of course, you know, they bring it up to me because I'm the audio guy in the family. 
But a uh, lot of lot of things have changed there sonically, where they're very loud. So there's some good things. There's some bad things. One thing that really, really, I'm just gonna just say it. This really bugged the shit out of me. 25 years ago, when I said my wife surprised me with a trip to Disneyland, she gave me 25 years ago my first cell phone. It was a Sprint flip phone, uh, Motorola flip phone from Sprint at that time. And I remember being so excited by that. 25 years later, everybody, of course, has smartphones. And the problem with that is everybody has a smartphone. So we were riding the Indiana Jones ride, also an incredibly loud ride, like ear piercing. I should have worn earplugs. Anyways, we're riding the ride, woman in front of us, videos the whole thing, screens on maximum brightness and takes flash photos along the way as we're doing the ride. And you know, what are you gonna do? What am I gonna say? Hey lady, can you put your phone down and start a big, uh, you know, uh, ruckus? I say you just let it go and just scratch your head and think, wow, people are idiots. But uh, yeah, phones, phones everywhere. Haunted Mansion, woman was like videoing the whole thing. And I just, the whole time I was thinking, number one, for the areas where the audio does sound really amazing, you're not going to capture the audio, and you're certainly not going to capture the visual that's going along with it. So, yeah. And then, of course, you know, people people just looking at uh, people playing video along the way um, in the park, sitting on a bench just, you know, with a YouTube video blaring out. I interesting uh, observations for me of people's behavior. Um, if you're one of those types of people that just has no cell phone etiquette, I'm just going to beg you now, please stop. It's just awful. People do it here in the Bay Area on uh, on public transportation, playing music as if nobody else can hear what they're listening to or watching. It's it's really amazing. So yeah, I had a great time. Uh, it was um, it was amazing. So I don't want to complain too much here, but uh, those were my observations. You know, I've been to Disneyland a million times, and just comparing those two time periods of age 25 to age 50 and what has changed sonically, a lot of things have changed. I don't know what's going on over there. So. Regardless, if you are going to go to Nam in January in uh, Anaheim, Disneyland's right across the street from the convention center. If you have a chance to go over there and spend a day, I encourage you to do it. It's amazing still. You know, in spite of my complaints, it's an amazing place. Sonically, the things that are going on, when you get a little distance from it and then you come back to it and, and observe it from kind of an audio professional's perspective, it's amazing all the things that are in place there. If you work for Disney and you're hearing this and you have permission to, you know, ramble with me and talk on Working Class Audio, reach out. I'd love to have that conversation about uh, the about the audio aspects of Disneyland. So, and your job, if you could talk about that. So there's my call. Everybody quit using your cell phones in really rude ways wherever you are and uh if you work for disney and you could talk about the audio portion of it reach out to me and uh, as usual reach out to me on linkedin that's the best place to find me that's the best place to friend me if that's what they call it there connect with me i'd love to connect with you so that's it thanks for drinking coffee with me and uh, hearing me out Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. 
you might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. This is the second day of Music Expo that we recorded this. This is the keynote panel of producers and engineers, and it includes our friend Warren Hewitt, Starita, Michael Starita, and Michael James, all who have been on the show before. It also includes Emiliano Caballero and Lenise Bent. I'll include links in the show notes to all the panelists so you can read up on everybody and know about the work that they have done. And uh, let's get to it. Yeah. Music Expo 2019 here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and congratulations for being here at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. And thank you for the support. This is the first time we do a two-day event, and I'm really excited and nervous and freaking out. So to remediate to that, we have an all-star panel for you to kick off the morning, hosted by our friend, Matt Boudreau, whose birthday was, was it really yesterday? Or what? No, it's actually on the 26th. On the 20th of what? November. <laughs> Three years ago. <laughs> Three years ago. All right. We just partied last night. <laughs> they partied last night, um, but his birthday is November 26th, so happy birthday, Matt Boudreau. And on that, you have a great day, and I pass it to Matt. Welcome, everybody. Because there are not enough candidates, we are all here to announce our candidacy for President of the United States and the Democratic <laughs> ticket. 
Oh, wrong, wrong panel. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm Matt Boudreau. I am host of the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'm also an audio engineer, and I am joined by some incredible people who have... I'm not going to count up the years on them, but they have years of experience of making records at a high level. We are going to talk today about production and all the aspects of production. We're not going to get into how do you EQ a kick drum. So if you're here for that, you might exit now because... Oh, you're out? Okay, good. Well, I'm out too then. We talked about this, everybody. We talked about the differences in production. I want to kind of get a baseline of figuring out production means different things to different genres, what the, the producer's role and you know, what somebody does in the world of rock can vary differently from the world of hip-hop. So could you all maybe dissect it a, a bit for us and talk about the differences in genre and what the producer role means to different people in different genres? Well, I can start. One of the things that's very important that a producer does in the rock genre or working with bands and, or single artists like that, the producer's in charge of the budget, which a lot of people don't think about, but should. That's our job to keep the project on budget and on time. And to me, that's a real important part. I'll speak to this. I work in both hip-hop, dance music, as well as rock and roll. I'm kind of a chameleon in that sense. But So when I'm working with dance artists or hip-hop artists, when they say producer, they're saying the person that made the beats. But then I jump over to the rock world or the pop world, excuse me, you know, I start with the song. I'm sitting there with the artist with the song, going through arrangements, vocal melodies, and I'm also managing the budget. I'm hiring the studio musicians. I'm the liaison between the engineer and the artist because the artist might have a vision in mind. We agree on that, and then I, it's my duty to make sure that we're, everything we're doing is moving towards that end goal of who is the artist, how do they want to sound, and does that align with who they are? And uh, all the way till mastering. Very heavily involved. Fifth member of the band. Yeah, and, and biggest fan. That was great. <laughs> what he said. Yeah, I agree. I, well, I think on a, on a technical level, because I agree with the, with, with the business aspects and, and the overview, on a technical level, I think for those of us that grew up doing rock and roll, where hip-hop was emerging, you know, from late 80s on... What used to be the programmer is now in hip-hop and EDM and pop is now the producer. When there was that sort of transitional period where programming stuff came in, that's what we had. We had a programmer that was building tracks that we were adding to our organic stuff. It's an interesting question, and I'm, I'm just going to say one thing. I still don't think anybody's figured out how these words, worlds work together. I almost feel like if you go back to the mid-90s, without getting too much off the thing, I feel like in the mid-90s there was a better sense of how organic and program stuff worked. Now it seems like it's diametrically opposed. You're either doing organic stuff or program stuff. I don't hear anything that's really kind of working. Just to move that along. Do you have any thoughts on that, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to add to what everybody else has said. Primarily working with uh, rock and singer-songwriter R&B and jazz, very different, but also similar. Like with the jazz guys, you just want to let them know if they were tight and if they played a good solo, right? You want to check the chart and make sure that there are no clashing notes, stuff like that. But the rock and, and song-oriented type stuff, which is my favorite, I find that the roles can go anywhere from being um, a confidant to the band to perhaps the most important part for me, which is the keeper of the artistic vision. So like you tell me you want to make a certain kind of record, I'll respect that. And if it's not the type of thing that makes you, that flatters you, I'll also tell you that. 
make any sense there? Yeah. Yeah. So, I'll limit it to that. Emiliano, in the in the Latin world, which which you seem to run in quite a bit, are there differences from that perspective? Is it essentially the same in terms of heavier rock music in Latin is produced differently than you know hip hop music in the Latin world? I have to say that I don't I don't think it's a difference. I think for me it's just uh, it's the approaches are are with different age of artists, especially with younger artists. I'm 32 right now, and I work with artists that are 21, 23, 24. Sometimes the, the ignorance of what it used to be for them, mm -hmm. it's a, an amazing thing of like, there's no rules for them, but that's a double-edged sword where as well, sometimes you need some some guidance, and especially you need to, to understand who you need to call. Like, especially, it's, it, there are amazing artists that just record themselves with a phone and they, they touch your, your heart. But then they have no idea how to get that into a finished product. So that's the, the, main, the main challenge for me working with like artists right now that you might have to, to tell them like, look, this is what I will do. We can do whatever we want, but if you want to go to the finish line, you might want to get some musicians, get some good songs first before even recording one sound because they, they, they th it's so easy to record that everyone now it's recording before writing the song which I don't sure if it works yeah the the sense of pre-production is is not really there as it used to be possibly yeah they don't even know what pre-production is right. they they see everything as just the finished song which is fine but <clears throat> you need to walk before running and that's for me the the, the main thing that I try to exercise with artists do you all think that as the industry changes and, and there's more power in the artist's hands for not only recording but distribution, do you find it as producers harder to justify your own existence because the artists don't really understand themselves what a producer is, does, or what value they bring to the table? Not at all for me. They pick me because they need me to do those things that they don't know how to do and it's so important to instill trust into the artists that because i'm making decisions regarding their vision i am creating focus to that vision i'm creating how to make that happen i'm also an engineer so i'm engineering and producing like you said arranging um doing pre-production doing because i work with with artists and bands quite often to tape in the analog world as well as, you know, Pro Tools or whatever. So there is a lot of pre-production, and I have to make sure that they understand the process. Learn that the hard way when uh, just assuming that somebody understands how it's done, and then they don't know what's going on and they get frustrated. So it's a very nurturing, guiding, a lot of trust relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think it's even more important now because there is such an interaction that you're almost a partnership it's not like me producer you artist you do what i say it's not like that at all my job is to take your vision and make it happen the way you want it to do it's not about me in that respect it's it's about you and your music that's why i want to work with you so it's it goes both ways hmm. yeah michael I'd just like to add to that that i find in my experience that with new artists they may start thinking that they know it all and they hear the finished record but then they play their record against one of our records and wonder why it doesn't sound the same, and then they call. Mm -hmm. and, and it's usually a really good move because it can actually accelerate the development of an artist because it's not our first day on the jobs. 
One thing that I want to touch on is points. Now, Warren, you talked about the glorious 90s, right? Well, well I, I'm not a big fan of the 90s. I meant from the point of view of, <laughs> of well, when electronic music started emerging in a really big way in the 90s. I mean, when I, in the 80s, for me, electronic was all over the place in, in, in the UK. But where it started to come together, I liked the fact where it blended together. You go back and listen to like Porter's Head and Massive Attack and stuff like that. Right. It still sounds like the future. Right. It still sounds like they blended organic mm. with... But with the stuff. business practices of the 90s are not the same business practices that they are now, right? As far as sure. d- points. When, when I mention that word to, to people I interview, they just kind of laugh. And they're like, what points? So am I right? Are you all getting points now? Is that Yeah, but it's, a totally, it's totally rejuvenated. It's a different way. When independent artists come to you, you work out a way of you know, sharing in some kind of income depending on... A million things. You just have to be smart with it, you know. You can do a profit share. You can work for less money and get more on the back end. You know, it all just comes down to, do you love the artist? Do you believe in them? Do you want to just be associated because it's, it's amazing music? So you'll, you'll take less maybe up front, back end, everything, you know. I, I get asked this question that you're asking hundreds of times a day in various forms, whether it be messages or emails and Everybody's like, can you send me the contract you use? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't have one size fits all anymore. There is no such thing. I mean, I could speak to what I generally do because I know people want hard information. I generally, I move it to a percentage base of 15% on the master after recoupment and then an upfront cost per song. And that's where the wiggle room is upfront versus back end money. A lot of this, real, realistically, if you're working with an independent artist, you know, if they've put out a lot of money on creating this thing, recoupment is far off in the distance <laughs> sometimes, you know, if they've spent 30 grand. And what I mean by recoupment, just to be completely base level here, is the producer does not get paid until they've gotten all their money back that they've put out, including your upfront money. <laughs> so let's say you've gotten 3,500 bucks per tune. Until they get that back, you don't get your royalty. And don't confuse a royalty with copyright of the master either. Um, I was just going to say, well, it depends on the relationship that you set up too, or the agreement that you make. For me, I get a, a rate as an engineer, so I, I know I'm always getting paid at least for that. And then my production deal that I typically start with is 20% of all revenue streams starting with record one, meaning I don't wait for them to recoup because because right. I want to get paid. I worked hard. Yeah. I'm a member of the band. You guys are getting paid. Because of me, this record's out. So, And we're all happy with that. That's just kind of a, a good starting point, good basic production agreement, project demo work contracting. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Let's talk, talk about the survival aspects of this. So we can engineer and produce, and that engineering sometimes will help pay the basic costs in the production. It's like something far off in the distance we hope to get 
assuming the band doesn't break up, the thing gets promoted, et cetera, et cetera. So can you all talk about surviving, paying the bills as producers? One thing that I'm pretty hard about is I don't engineer the stuff that I'm producing because I feel that the project ends up suffering if I'm worried about the mic. And I'm running around like, oh, shit, the, the drummer just hit the snare mic. I need to run out there when I'm trying to work with maybe the singer. We're going over some melodies, and I'm kind of splitting duties. So I generally don't engineer. But uh, the survival aspect of it is that I personally don't ever do... I always have some upfront payment. I never do anything for free upfront and just back in money, money because... You know what? What if I tell my landlord, hey, man, I got 15% on this master. It's it's a hit, I'm telling you. You know, that doesn't fly in this day and age. So you need to know your worth, and you need to charge that. This is something I'm very, very a hard ass on because not only if you undercharge for something, you're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting the industry because you're bringing down with the expectations of what people can get. They think that they can get stuff for free or for extremely cheap. And as we all know, we're working our behinds off on these projects. So that is one survival tactic. <laughs> I, I do totally agree, but I, I, know, I know what you're saying. But I hope everybody is going to hear what we're going to say now because I knew you're going to agree with this. But there is exception. The exception is you want the gig. You go and do the song for free to go look at that. And you spend a day on something and then they book you. There's a difference between like working on an album for three months for free and becoming homeless and falling in love with an artist and five produce, all of us want to produce that artist. Yes. And we go, look, we'll all do the song. I've had mastering engineers, mixers, everything of massive names master or mix a song for free to get the gig. Oh, for sure. That does yeah. happen. So, so just make sure we hear that because I, I, people absolutely. get confused by that. I know what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree Thanks with what you're for, saying. For, for doing that. And I should probably add to this that, you know, I know relative to many people, my fees are kind of stupid expensive, like expensive enough that if I were to go, like an indie just comes up to me and says, how much, you know, is it going to cost to do this? It's like, well, what's your budget? Which I think that's the new way of things. You have to figure out what the budget is and then figure out a way for make it a win-win. I mean, if it's, if it's not a win-win, can't do it. But I also agree that you have to get paid up front and you have to sometimes do the gig for free. But I won't call it free. I'd call it pro bono or barter or something like that. Because, like, if I really want to do something, I'm not going to mix an album for somebody. But I might do one song. And, by the way, yes. mix-offs, we get asked to do those all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, sure, I'll do the mix-off, and you can pay me for it. And what I might do is make a reduced rate for the mix-off, but with the deal in place for the rest of the album. So let's just say that, okay, I'll, I'll mix the tune for you for, let's just say, 1500 bucks. Okay? Mm -hmm. But... When you get the album, when you get your money, the deal is going to be 4000 a tune or maybe 30000 all in for the whole album or, you know, whatever it is. It's like you put those things into place right away. And I think immediately you got to get something back. And it might even be something like, hey, I'm an old schmuck here. How do I use Twitter? Teach me how to use Twitter. Or why don't you set up a Twitter account and maintain it for me for a year? Or just something like that where you are getting something back because we yeah. are doing the work, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so, and know your value and don't overprice yourself and don't underprice yourself um, either. Do you know, my one secret, my one secret is, is I just think it's all time. That's the answer, time. Yeah, yeah. Somebody comes to me and says, the budget, I'm like, well, okay, if it's X number of dollars, I'm like, well, how much time is it going to take me? Yeah. That's really it, because there's no yeah. one... So I could do something for $1,500 or 500 and 500 is fine if it took me a couple of hours to mix a very simple song. That's a great payday. 
Oh yeah, I'll produce something on an iPhone for five hundred bucks. But like, I mean, yeah, I, let's rehearse. But, but there's songs I can mix in, in two hours for five hundred bucks, and I'm fine because I might do four of them in one day. Exactly. So it's all about that's the answer to me. The one word I always think of is time. How long is it going to take? Well, that that's part of the uh, creating the budget, and I work in post production too a lot. So it kind of goes both ways. When somebody says, "I want you to do the sound design," or "I want you to do my record," and I want to do eight tunes, and I've got $50,000. And I want a whole band and I want these studio musicians and I want these guest artists because I'm a new artist and I'm, so I want them to bring you know, recognition to my record, blah, 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 all these different things. And I'll, I'll say, okay, great. You want a, a million dollar house, but you only have like, you know, I can build you a fantastic two bedroom condo with this, this budget. You want this other thing. What do you not want? The roof, the windows, the something. I can't give you that, I mean, this is how I can break it down between money and time, because time is money. So you have to create realistically, and this is an acquired skill, because you can think, yeah, because you really want to do this record. So you go, yeah, I can do that. I can cut 10 tunes in, in one day, and we'll do all the guitar parts and everything, and whatever it is, you know, you learn that that just isn't going to happen unless your, your pre-production is... It was really tight, and the band's tight, and all those. Uh, one thing I wanted to say about something that was brought up earlier about getting something up front, a retainer. I get a non-refundable retainer, too, because that proves to me that they really mean it. Because if somebody says, I want you to do my record, and so I start all the pre-production. You know, I start putting the budget together. I start booking the studio time or whatever it is that's required and going over the arrangements and all and spending time talking to them on the phone and I'll, and when they would call to talk, I'd say, okay, yeah, it's your dime. Clock's rolling. Sure, we can talk about anything you want. You were, <laughs> were going to say something? Yeah, circling back to your comment about yeah. the million-dollar home or the fantastic two-bedroom condo. Yes. The, the word that I want to underscore here is fantastic. Right, because it's better to knock one out of the park than to not really get anywhere. And and also, I find that if you do the one thing truly fantastically, they're going to be motivated to figure out a way to get you to do more. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. I want to touch on the, the thing that we were talking about when we were having coffee earlier. We, are, we were having a great discussion about mental health, how we judge success, how we can beat ourselves up, and how we 
evaluate our own lives in this business. So, Sarita, could you maybe lead that discussion a bit about what we were talking about and how we can relay it to everybody here in the room? Yeah, I think this isn't a subject that's touched on very often. How we define success and when we don't meet those parameters in our career of what we've defined and what that does to you internally, this is a very rough industry, not only physically, just schedules and being inside of the studio, but there's a, definitely a mental aspect that goes to it. Just talking from experience, you know, a lot of times you're like, okay, if I get the Grammy, then I will have made it. Get the gold record on the wall, then I've made it. But a lot of times this will happen, and then you still don't feel like you've made it. So you start to go through a lot of internal stuff, beating yourself up, and then when you're placing your value on the outside, external things and other people and what people think and stuff like that, you're never going to be happy. So when what I started to learn over the years is that when I was putting all the value on the things outside and nothing was adding up, there was only one place to turn and that was inside. How do I value success? How do I define success? And at the end of the day, it came down to, did I do the best work that I could do Am I putting my best foot forward? And then all of the Grammys and the gold records and all that stuff just becomes a side dish to that. Basically, if you're showing up every day, I always say that this industry is pretty much 20% talent and 80% persistence. And that might be 90-10, actually, yeah. because you, know, you just have to keep showing up. And I've jumped ship a couple of times. I went over to Dolby for five years. Like, oh, I'm going to get this paycheck. I'm going to be able to get my teeth cleaned every month. It's going to be awesome, right? And then I realized that the paycheck... Wait, the, you can get your teeth cleaned with Dolby? Uh, well, having health insurance <laughs> oh. was, was a big deal, you know. And um, I'm English. You see my teeth. Yeah. <laughs> so the money still didn't do it. You know, the music industry chooses us. You know, we get chosen by can, that. Can I speak to this for one second? Yeah, go ahead. It's a great subject. I like what you're talking about. It's the uh, don't judge your insides to other people's outsides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that, that, that phrase a lot. For me, it's uh, quite simple because I, I think the Grammys and the, and the gold and platinum records are actually the artists and we, we're, we're just there. That's just easy for me because I just look at it and go, I'm lucky enough to work with somebody who got nominated or won or platinum and gold records. When I did get the first number ones plaque from Billboard, I was really excited about getting it. And then when I got it, it was very anticlimactic. Yeah, same. Um, because then I realized it's like four million people bought the record and four million, three million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine bought it because of the fray. They didn't buy it because of Warren. I bought one because of me. I was the only person that bought because of me. And that's, that's just the reality. Maybe my mum, so too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, it's not about being humble and false humility. It's just a fact. Nobody has ever bought a record because I made it, except for me or my family. And that's okay. So I think as long as we're, we're able to sort of think that way, I think we're good. But no, it's a really important subject because I think the reason why maybe it bothers us as producers and engineers and mixers is because we know we're getting chosen because of that. And I know probably in the audience, a lot of you hearing us talk on, on this sort of level, but you're probably all thinking, well, it's all right for you because you do have gold and platinum records, so people are going to call you anyway. I think maybe a subject to get onto is like, how do you get into that place? How do you get it so you become a call? Because I do still get calls because of X, Y, and Z albums. I'm sure you all do. Yeah. So where now we are in the industry is like, how do you 
How do you get customers? How do you get clients? Or how do you brand yourself? One important thing I want to say about, you know, mental health and, and being a producer is make sure that you really are into that music and really are into that artist. Because you will become an, a member of the band, just like uh-huh. you said, and you have to be the greatest fan. And that artist or that band deserves that. They need to have a producer that really believes in the project because it's, it's going to be tough enough anyway. We're all birthing a baby here. That's what we're doing. We're creating. We're being artists and, and using our talents and our skills together to birth this baby. And it's hard enough. I mean, there's a lot of labor pains going on making these projects. Totally. <laughs> a single or an album. So if you're not totally into the music, you're going to pretty much be miserable, and that band deserves to have somebody who is. Because if you may not be, but there may be somebody who is, they should have that person produce them. You're, you're being a little quiet over there, Emiliano. Well, I'm thinking, Emiliano, you relocated. You've just moved here yes. from another country. So yes. how are you? How does that work for yeah, you? How are you scaring up work? As of uh, getting, like, working with new people. Mm-hmm. So basically, I, I moved to L.A. as Last week was my first year in Los Angeles. I was living in Paris for a year, and before that I was in New York. So the past 12 years since I left Spain, I've moved around quite some. In the flip side, the negative side that I thought I was getting into, it was basically I was for a couple of years in a country, creating contacts, all that kind of stuff. Then I left, and then I thought, like, man, I have to do this all over again. So I think when I went to my first internship, which I was living in Spain. I moved to Belgium to stu- intern in a studio. Then I interned in another studio in Amsterdam. Then I went back to Belgium to work there. Then I went to New York to work in a studio. Then I went to Paris. Then I came to Los Angeles. And what I found out over all these years is like, I just added up people that know me. And not necessarily because I have like great talent or anything, but I do care about when I'm working with someone. And I think that comes across when you really become friends, especially right now, I'm mostly working with my friends. Uh, that sounds um, might sound a bit strange, like, how do you get paid? It's like, well, I have a huge lack of having very talented friends. But it all, I think, came from, from having good intentions, and, and especially LA, and this is my first year here, and I, I feel weird about giving advice with people that are like so much experience than me and I'm just here I'm here I'm quiet because I'm like actually learning from all these amazing people like what the what what I'm doing here anyway if you if you know people tell me about going to LA it's like watch out there is a lot of blah 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 there's a lot of like we should work together or you know people handing you business cards like a hundred business cards to your face and I'm very shy I don't I don't have you know that kind of attitude and at the end, the first, one of the things that a friend told me is like, you know, just be yourself and, and whatever happens, happens. And first night, I think I moved to LA in October. First week, I went to a place called Hotel Cafe, which is an amazing place to discover music in LA. And I got basically my first album out of there because the guy was super good. And I just say like, man, you are super talented. And, and I didn't even give him my name. And next day, he, because... He found on Facebook, I guess in Google, he's like a Spanish producer, Los Angeles or something. And he found me on Instagram. He's like, hey man, I saw your website. I, you did one of my favorite records. Can we do a record together? So that was 20 something of October. I was moving to my new house, 5th of November. 5th of November, my landlady of the previous house helped me out moving to my new apartment. 
I left, I didn't have any furniture. I left my furniture and I went to the studio the same night. And we became friends ever since and now we are doing a second record. And that's, I don't know. You, you said something that, that I think is, Warren was kind of saying to the audience, you know, how do you get up to this level when, when you, you can't start at, you know, the level that, that everybody's at. You have to grow from something. You said something that really I think is important. You work a lot with people that you know and when you start at that point and you put your best work in it, that can grow and that can lead to other things. So it's about building something. You can't just jump in and say, I want to be a producer and I want to do something miraculous that everybody's going to hear about. Now, maybe there's a unicorn like that out there that that's happened to. But what you're talking about, I think, is important. You just got to start doing it. And by doing it with people that you know, you can do it in a comforting environment and start to grow it from there. I'm going to give you a quick example. Like when I used to work in New York, I used to be a, a mix assistant for a producer there and a mixer. And one day, basically, without name dropping, Bon Jovi was there mixing the album. And we spent a month with, with the last Bon Jovi album. But I was just like the guy, the assistant. Mm -hmm. So no one really cared about me, which is fine. I was there to just learn. But something struck my mind. It's like, okay, either I will never get a gig with Bon Jovi. I'm a huge fan. I will never get a mixing, producing, songwriting gig with Bon Jovi because, I mean, he already has all these talented people around him. What if I find my own Bon Jovi? Right. Long story short, one of my best friends now in LA, he just released a new single, super talented guy, and I was thankful enough to be one of the songwriters and producers on the record, with one of my favorite producers being the main producer of the record, and it's kind of this kind of rock and stadium rock music. I was like, maybe it, he's... It's your own Bon Jovi? Maybe, maybe yes. You know? <laughs> I want to... I actually, Michael, you, you've done something... You spent the majority of your career in Los Angeles. And right. within the last couple right. of years, you've moved up here. So you've had a change, geographically speaking. And while it's not as extreme as moving from one country to another, it's definitely a completely different ecosystem that you've moved into up here from Los Angeles. Can you talk about that? Yes. A couple of very important points to me are that one is that I don't see the belief system here that I see in Los Angeles. Nobody believes that they can actually make it here. Okay. Um, I also will tell you that being yourself is extremely important because I'm going to weed out 90% of the people right now because I'm kind of a knucklehead, right? But I love life and I love taking care of people and some people are going to resonate with that. And I've also put in my 10,000 hours, so, so that helps. So for me, the transition was basically how can I be myself and how can I not fall into that trap of where people, you know, they feel like there's not enough work going around and remember we had a couple of discussions with a few other guys and some of them were kind of panicked about not having enough work at $200 a day they were saying and there was a worry that somebody would come up from LA and steal all of the work and I was just thinking well my daily overhead is more than five times that so I can't I can't work for $200 a day but you know hopefully I find a way to provide value for the fee that I do charge so the way that the transition worked for me was kind of a little bit out there, a little esoteric, but I decided that I would plug into the community. This is my new hometown, you know, the North Bay, Petaluma. And for the Bay Area, I would do anything that I could to rise the tide so that all boats float higher, okay? And I knew that, like I mentioned uh, 20 minutes ago, you know, my fees, my book fee even though I'll make a deal with anybody if I want to do the work and it's a good fit, my book fee is stupid expensive, right? So 
how am I going to get people to take a chance on spending my fee? Well, what I figured I would do is something where even if it never came back to me, I'd do that rising the tide thing. So Matt and I and a couple of other people got together and decided we would do one pro bono thing per month, uh, you know, just take a day or a weekend, and it would be a collaboration with somebody who was worthy who could tell us why do something for me when you could do it for something else. And I'll, I'll spare all the details, but the point is that it's starting to take on a life of its own where people are just getting to know about me now and they're, they know that it's one thing, it's one song, whether it's a co-writer or a mix or pre-production or career counseling, whatever it is. It's like, I feel good going to bed at night knowing that I did something well. And now the way that the karma works about this is that people in LA who were reluctant to drive 30 miles across to Simi Valley to sit next to me while I'm doing a mix, it's like they'd rather just hear an MP3 at the end of the day. Those same people are, for whatever reason, driving 400 miles up to LA to sit next to me. They'll either rent a home, uh, rent a room, or they'll, they'll stay at my place like a hacienda type thing. And then they go back at the end of the weekend, or they go back two weeks later, or whatever. And I got to tell you, I've been, my income has not taken a dent. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, I just wanted to discuss you leaving Los Angeles and getting acclimated to the Bay Area and, and the North Bay and how that's affected your production career. Well, I have, a, I have twice as many friends now. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, And that's, that's an interesting topic because, you know, Emiliana, you've moved around a lot and a lot of people can get stuck in their own little ecosystem, in their own town, whether it is Los Angeles or, or San Francisco or, or wherever it is. And traveling around and expanding the network can be a very powerful thing. Would you all agree to that? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Oh yeah, being, being global is to think globally and internationally because your music is going to be, hopefully, if people are doing their work on the marketing end of your record, that's going to go around internationally. and um, Actually, with interrupting you, Lenisa and I, we met because she was in Amsterdam yes. with my business partner from Libwin and having dinner. And I was like, oh, man, I met Lenisa. She's great. And then like we just met at a party of Libwin in LA. Yeah, exactly. And then we, like here we are. You know, that is, that's <laughs> it's, it, thing. it is important to get out and, and travel around if you can. I know that you know not everybody's got the budget or the time to do so. But, I mean, take, for example, you and I met online through an email connection, yeah. but then we actually met in person randomly when I showed up at Blackbird Studios in Nashville, in Nashville yeah. and there you were, and I was like, <laughs> I know that guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to add to this real quickly. So people talk about being in the right place at the right time, but somebody one time said, it's, I think it's about being in the right place enough times. And so moving to a new area, getting out, expanding the network, Anything that you can do to connect with people, like even at our Ask Me Anything session yesterday, everybody was exchanging phone numbers and telling what they could do. And the fact that anybody is sitting up here on this panel reaching out means that we know that our current clients are either going to retire or they're going to die. We need new clients, right? So you get out there and you give people the chance to see your services, to hear your services, and decide for themselves whether or not they like it enough to pick up the phone and give you a shout. We are out of time. Could I get a round of applause for my great guests? All right. So, and to our, to our moderator. Thank you. Yes, thank thank you. you. Happy birthday, Matt. Oh, thank you.
Music Expo 2019 here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. If you ever get a chance and you want to come to Music Expo, it takes place in multiple cities across the U.S., including Boston, Miami, Nashville, and San Francisco. And would love to see you there. I'll put a link in the show notes, musicexpo.co, and you can find out all there is to know. A lot of great panels, a lot of great uh, talent to uh, spread knowledge. So I think you might enjoy that. So check it out, Music Expo, yeah. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Well, that's it for us today. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plough on the editing, Cliff Truesdale with the Working Class Audio theme music, and the silky voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the beginning of the show. Spread the word as usual. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.